Well, we have a chance right now to uh, allow God to speak to us as, as preeminently as we read the word, but then also as we uh, listen attent attentively to it being faithfully expounded. And so I do pray that uh, that would happen this morning. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for the reminder that there it really is uh, no name given under heaven among men or women by which we must be saved. It is truly salvation and no one else other than Jesus himself. And so thank you, Jesus, for uh, coming. Thank you for living. Thank you for dying. Thank you for being resurrected by the Spirit and by your Father. Thank you for ascending and showering uh, your people with gifts. Thank you, Lord, um, for the promise that in the same way that you left us, you shall return with the cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and the sounding of a trumpet that we shall see you and uh, you shall come in glory and you shall come and glorify us that we might be with you and enjoy you forever and so lord uh, help us to sing of your praises now and uh, build us up as we turn our hearts towards your word allow us to behold the wonderful things from it we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this morning, we'll be looking at Genesis 28, and we'll begin at verse 10. I'll read through verses uh, 22. Jacob left Beersheba, where he, and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had already set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will never leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and if he will keep me in this way that I go and if he will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Amen. Uh, Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he writes uh, about this story. 
He has a friend who works with those who are down and out in Chicago. And he was with this friend and his friend told him the story of a, a prostitute who approached his friend and she was homeless and sick and unable to buy food for her and her two-year-old daughter. And I'll, I'll spare the details because of the audience, but when his friend met her, he, um, he sobbed because she had done the unthinkable. And he knew that he was liable now to call and report child abuse. And he said, I didn't know what to say to her. He said, at last, I asked her if she had ever thought about going to the church for help. And he said, I will never, ever forget the look on her face. She said, church, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible. And those people will only make me feel worse. And he goes on to write, what struck me about my friend's story is that women like this prostitute fled towards Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about himself or herself, the more likely in Jesus's day were they to run to him as a refuge. He says, has the church lost its greatest gift? We can build companies. We can build buildings. But no one on the planet can offer grace to a hurting world. And he says, evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on the earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened to us? He says, I made a chart of all the people who had personal encounters with Jesus. And with shocking consistency, a pattern emerged. The more upright, high-functioning, and even devout a person was, the more suspiciously they viewed Jesus. Meanwhile, the socially and the morally outcast, they were the ones that Jesus was attracted to the most. The same pattern emerges in his parables. The hero was a good Samaritan, not the good rabbi. The beggar named Lazarus, not the nameless rich man. An inarticulate tax collector, not a pious Pharisee, a prodigal son, not an obedient brother. Again and again, Jesus makes the point that although the world rewards the worthy individuals, the grace of God has nothing to do with your worthiness. He says, like water, grace always flows to the low places and to the low people. And it needs only to be received as a gift with open hands. He goes on to talk about if you look at the people God uses in the Bible, they're radically transformed by grace. Moses was a murderer who had a temper David committed adultery. Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Paul was a human rights abuser who tortured Christians. End quote. And we might as well throw Jacob into that list. He's a shady deceiver. 
And God is not ashamed to call him the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What are the consequences when we don't get grace? It impacts us missionally. The world doesn't want to be here. But it doesn't just impact us missionally. It impacts us as people. David Seaman says a major cause of most emotional problems among Christians is our failure to understand, receive, and live out of God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. We read about it. We hear about it. But it doesn't seem to penetrate our hearts. And so I pray this morning that we would leave here and that we would marvel in grace. You know, there's a fear when you talk about grace that, that it, it, it awakens something in us. It's the fear that it'll be abused. It's the fear that if you extend it, you're going to get hurt again. It's the fear that it becomes a license to indulge in sin. But I want to remind you what Paul says in Titus. He says, the grace of God has appeared and it trains us to renounce all ungodliness. We don't change by the law. We change when we grasp and receive God's mercy and grace to us in Christ. And this passage, it's one of the most beautiful evidences of it. And so I want to look at it. It, it breaks up really easy. You see a fleeing fugitive in verses 10 through 11. You see the God who specializes in finding fugitives and graciously blesses them in verses 12 through 15. And you see how this fugitive responds to grace in 16 through 22. Let's look at the fleeing fugitive, 10 and 11. Our passage opens up and it says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Now, I've not given you a map, but this is not a day trip, y'all. And this is before automobiles. Uh, Greg, will you show that first? And I know you may can't see it, but, but bottom left, where you see Negev and you see the Mediterranean Sea, bottom left, that's where Beersheba is. And, and Jacob is gonna journey all the way to the top and to the right, uh, where you see Haran. And, and that's about an 800 mile journey. Thank you, Greg. But I think we make the mistake if we don't let the, the, the context inform Jacob's leaving. You know, if you read some uh, children's Bibles, they, they, they might completely omit the reason Jacob is on the run. In other words, we have to let the rest of the chapter inform why, why is he leaving? Now, you know why he's leaving. He's leaving his mother and father and Beersheba and his twin brother because he's a fugitive. He stole the final blessing from his father by being by getting dressed in his brother's clothing, by having goat hair put on his hand and by having his mother prepare a meal. And he pretends to be Esau and, and, and he steals his brother's blessing. And his brother has had enough of it. 
His brother says, I'm, I'm going to kill him. His brother comforts himself by plotting how he's going to kill him. And so when we read that he leaves, he's not leaving walking. He's leaving running. His sympathetic nervous system has already been at play. He is in flight mode. His heart rate is elevated. He is afraid and he's running for his life. If I were illustrating a children's Bible, I would put Jacob in pinstripes. I will put wanted signs all around the image because he is a fugitive. Now, there are clues that he's afraid. The first is that he pushes himself until the sun goes down. Look at verse 11. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had already set. Normally, you would stop making press preparations around dusk to spend the night. And it reads as if Jacob is going to squeeze out every single bit of light he can get to get the farthest away from his home that he can. And second, it doesn't read as if he goes inside the city proper, which was named Luz. Rather, he sleeps outside on the land. In fact, God says the land, the earth that you're laying on right now, I'm going to give it back to you later. And this is important because what's not mentioned here is a tent. Remember how Jacob was introduced? He was introduced as a tent dweller. In a couple chapters, we're going to hear about him pitching his tent. And all of a sudden, it reads as if he ain't even pitching a tent. He don't plan on being there long. He is just trying to get sleep. As soon as the morning comes, he's up. And oftentimes in the Bible, when you hear the sun being set or darkness, it isn't just a physical darkness. It's a spiritual darkness. Jacob can't go home because he'll get killed. And what's await, what awaits him in the future, when he finally makes it to Haran, is a conniving uncle who's going to take advantage of him. And so this sun setting on him is not just the sun going down. He's going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. And then the text says he took one of the stones and he he the text says that he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. But but it could also be translated. He put it next to his head. And so if he's sleeping on the stone, it's a pillow. But there is also a case that you could translate this. He put this next to his head, and that may not mean anything to you. But if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26, when Saul went to sleep, Saul put his spear next to his head. Now, why would he do that? So that in the morning or in the night, if somebody attacks me, I don't got to look for the spear. It's right there next to my ear. I grab it and we're fighting. And so it could be that when Jacob puts this stone next to his head, it's not a pillow. It's for protection. Now, think about this. Esau was called what? A mighty hunter. A man of the field. Could it be that Jacob is afraid that my brother who hunts wild game, he can hunt me down like that? And so could it be that I'm known as a tent dweller 
And so what, I, what I'm gonna do is not dwell in a tent. My brother is not going, uh, uh, he thinks I'm a mama's boy. He thinks that I want no parts of nature. He thinks that I'm going to go into a city and pitch my tent and be safe. And if he looks for me, he's going to find me in a tent. I got something for him. We're going to push a little further. And I'm asleep in the night. Jacob's afraid. And Jacob is running. And Jacob is a fugitive. Now, imagine this. Imagine being an Israelite who came out of Egypt and your parents are dying off. And once that generation begins to die, you are about to embark into the promised land. And it's there that you begin to read this for the first time. Do you see the correlation? That those first recipients of Genesis would have been able to immediately connect with this passage. They know what it's like where you can't go back to Egypt. They know what it's like when somebody is on your tail to kill you. They know what it's like to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. If we go into this land, we got to fight. If we go back, they're going to kill us. They know what it's like to wander in the wilderness because of sin. That's why they never made it to the promised land. That generation did not trust the Lord. And so if you were a second generation Israelite about to go into the promised land, you read this story and you wonder, is God going to be for us? Does he have a heart for fugitives? Will he leave us out here to die? And the answer, of course, is no. He's not going to let you die. He has you. He has a soft spot for fugitives who were on the run on account for their sins. And maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you are isolated because of your own doing. Maybe you have separated yourself from people you love because of your sin. And maybe you wonder, does the Lord love me? Does he care about me? Does he see me? Yes. Or maybe you're here. And let's think about this passage from Isaac and Rebecca's standpoint. You know, they say that a parent is only as happy as their unhappiest child. If you have kids, then you know your day can be going great. You got a child that's walking wayward. It ain't so great no more. Imagine them. Their family's blown up. Their son, he's gone. I imagine them worrying, is he safe? Is Esau going to track him down? Is he going to make it? And this reminds us as parents. God can move. God will keep his promises to us and to our children and to their children. He is faithful. Now, how do we know? We know it through the second point. Because we serve a God who specializes in finding and graciously blessing fugitives. Let me show it to you. So I'm not a hunter. I've never been hunting ever. And I don't really get sitting in a deer stand for all day and coming home with nothing. I, I just, I, I can't do it. No offense, hunters. I see some of y'all looking at me. I like to fish, but I'm just, I'm not a hunter. I don't get killing a deer and 
cutting it and putting its blood on my skin. Like I just, I ain't got to do none of that. <laughs> I like to fish and that's about it. Now the closest I have gotten to hunting was about 2013. And at that time I was working as a campus pastor for Jackson State. And so me and all the guys who did campus ministry in the state decided to go to RUF staff training early and we were meeting in Dallas. And so we went three days early. We went two hours past Dallas. Someone in our group's family had a hunting lodge on about 100 acres. And so we said, all right, we, we're going to go and retreat for a couple days before we go to training. And so we got there and um, there were, were, were shotguns and there were skeet shooting machines out there. And so we decided we're going to shoot skeet. And so we're out there with shotguns. Somebody's pulling the line and we're pew. And then finally we hear these, we, we heard these dogs that were barking. And we're like, man, nobody should be on this property. This, this is about 100 acres. Whose, whose dogs are these? And so we stopped shooting. And then there's a river that runs at the back of the property. And then we saw this guy kind of come up on a four-wheeler out of the river. And he had a gun strapped to him like on his back. And he drove up on us. Are y'all shooting my dogs? Are y'all shooting my dogs? <laughs> And we like, what? We're shooting skeet, not your dogs. And he was, we said, what you doing on the property? Well, I'm hunting. Hunting what? I'm hunting wild hogs. And he said, my dogs have got some corner right over yonder. Y'all want to come and see? <laughs> <laughs> and so we put, we put our guns down and we walked several hundred yards over into the woods. And there it was. His, his five dogs, they had body armor on and they had radio collars on their necks and he had a, a control. He had this little thing where he was tracking them and he had tracked them across the river and up into our property and over into a corner. And we got there and, and you could smell this thing before you got there. And it was a 400 pound wild hog. And so he, he strapped it up and tied it up and we helped him put it on his four-wheeler and he drives back to the lodge and we sit and he calls his friend who has to come around the other side of the river so it takes him 45 minutes and we got this wild hog like right in front of us that's still breathing. It's alive. And then he loads it up on the back of this pickup truck to go sell it. I'm like, who buys wild hogs? The closest I've gotten to hunting. <laughs> but it was, it was the, it, the trekking. Like he has dogs that cornered the wild hog. He has remote control collars that, that tells him where they're going. And when they find the hog, they corner it and they say, it's right here. It's right here. It's right here. And he drives up on his four wheeler right there to seize him. Beloved, Jacob can run, but you can't outrun God who has angels and archangels who show up in this text in his dream. It's as if God is telling Jacob, you can run from Esau, but there is nowhere on this planet that you can run to that I can't touch you if I want to. And so Jacob is pursued and caught by God. 
And it's actually beautiful when you stop and think about it. If you want to talk to me or have a, a communication with me, I have to be awake and present and alert, right? God is like, no, nah, bro, you can be asleep. I can jump in your REM cycle and wreck your whole world right here and right now. This is the first time in the Bible we think where, where God actually does step into someone's dreaming and makes himself known. And so it's actually beautiful because the word behold shows up and behold, I think, is, is a tool that, 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 that the, the writer is using to let us focus in on the four things that matter. And so if I were translating behold, I would put my, my spin on it. Hey, you're not going to even believe this. So everywhere you see behold, just say, hey, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe it. And so the first behold you get is a ladder. Jacob sees a ladder and it goes from earth to heaven, right? And, and, and this is the only time in the Hebrew Bible that this particular word is used, which makes translating it that much more difficult. So some Bibles will say a ladder, others will say a staircase, and then several scholars will say what Jacob saw maybe looking something like this. This is a, a, a ziggurat. I think I'm saying that correctly. This was normal in Jacob and Esau. I mean, Jacob and Abraham's day. This, this may have been what the Tower of Babel might have looked like, that they're building something with an edifice that will reach the heavens. And if this is the case, then what Jacob sees is, is a, a, a huge and massive structure. He says, this is the house of God. He doesn't just see a staircase. He sees something expansive and big. And then he sees angels ascending and descending. Thank you, Greg. And the word order is important. It reads as if the angels had already been on the earth. They didn't descend and ascend. No, they were ascending and descending. At best, it means that God has used them to track this dude down, even though God doesn't have to. It could also mean that this is a thin space where heaven and earth intersect and God opens up this portal like you do in video games these portals that let you step through one world into another that God himself opens up a portal and says Jacob I can find you there is nowhere you can go beyond me and then the third thing that Jacob sees is the Lord himself and it, it, it's translated he saw the Lord at the top but it also could be translated and and he saw Yahweh beside him if it's beside him, it means that, that the Lord himself, who was at the top, has descended and has come down and has made his dwelling among man. And if the Lord is at the top, then, then the Lord is envisioned as being enthroned and lifted up and is the one that's giving commands to the angels to go do his work. And this is where it really gets good. If you believe that the Lord was at top and he stepped down, what is the Lord going to say to Jacob? Let me jog your memory. Remember when he served the meal to Isaac? Back in chapter 27, verse 20. And Isaac says, son, how did you get this here so fast? He says, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. And that's a lie. 
The Lord didn't tell you to deceive and dishonor your father and mother. The Lord didn't tell you to steal what's not yours. The Lord didn't tell you to misuse his name, to use it in vain. The Lord cannot sin, cannot tempt us to sin. It's never a part of sin. What Jacob did was equivalent to what Ananias and Sapphira does in Acts chapter 5. When they lie to the Holy Spirit, only he lies about God. You know what happened in Acts chapter 5? They sold their proceeds. They were supposed to lay all of their proceeds or at least declare that we're giving you this portion of our proceeds for you. And what they, they, they lied. They lied and told the Holy Spirit that we sold the, 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 our property for this amount and every single cent is what we're laying at your feet. And Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias breathed his last and he fell dead. And then several hours later, later, they found Sapphira. Sapphira, please tell us, did you sell your land for that amount? And is that the amount you gave us? Yes. And she died and breathed her last. And you expect that when you read that this guy has lied on God, about God, you would expect to read. And Jacob breathed his last and he died. And that's not what you read. Look at what you read. You actually see grace. You're not going to believe it, but God does not say that. He does the opposite. He does not judge him. He shows up and he is graciously blessing this guy. And this is where grace is embodied. It is not only God not giving sinners what they deserve. It's God actually choosing to bless sinners who deserve his wrath and judgment. If you want a picture of grace, it's right here. And God tells him, not only am I not here to kill you, I'm actually here to bless you. I'm not here to take your life. I'm here to give you life abundantly. And notice the repetition of the words, I, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. This is not Jacob's ladder up to God. This is God's grace down towards Jacob. And the Lord says, I will give you the very land that you're laying on right now. I'm going to give it to you and your offspring and your offspring. And he's childless and wifeless at the moment. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. They will be all over the face of the earth to the west, to the east, to the north and to the south. And here's the thing, beloved. We're fulfillment of that right here and right now. We are the west that God talked about. And Africa is the south that God talked about. And Korea is the east that God was talking about. And Europe is the north. And right now, people from every nation and tribe and tongue are worshiping this same God. And you know what God is telling Jacob? Didn't I tell you I was going to keep my promises to you? I got people who don't look like you. They don't even speak your language. They've never set foot on this soil. And yet they're my people. They're united to you, not by birth, but through faith. And then God says, and I got a final behold in verse 15. And Jacob, you're not going to believe it. Hold your seat. I'm with you. 
I'm never, ever, ever leaving you. I will finish all that I promised to you. Are you feeling the weight of your sin? Are you plagued by the question, if God truly loves me? Let this passage put out the fires of shame, fear, guilt, and doubt. Those things can torch your life and your soul. And God is here to extinguish them with his grace. He says, if you're in Jesus, you're mine. And I love you. And I'm for you. Now, what's the guarantee? What's the guarantee that if our children run amok and try to put on track shoes and outrun grace, that God is faster, that God is stronger? What's the guarantee? It's two things, I think, in this passage. First, notice that Jacob named this place Bethel which means the house of God. Prior to this, it, would, it was named Luz. After this, it's named Bethel. In fact, if you go back and read Abraham's journey, it really gets puzzling because it says that Abraham pitched his tent near Bethel. And so you're like, wait a minute, it wasn't renamed till, till, till old boy just renamed it right here. So it, it's the author of Genesis letting what Jacob does here reverberate back there Abraham pitched his tent and it was lost but because Jacob renamed it and claimed it as God's house God's dwelling among men it's colored every time it's used in the book and it means the house of God God among us you know the prophet Isaiah is going to say in several hundred years this is a sign a woman shall a virgin shall conceive she shall have a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Same ending. L means God. And that's what Matthew says. It means God with us. If you want to know God's heart towards sinners, look to Jesus. There is, a, there is not a non-sinner that Jesus ever communed with. He loved sinners. Kicked it with sinners. Had dinner with sinners. Went to weddings with sinners forgave sinners, died for sinners, was raised for sinners, will come back for sinners. If you want to know God's heart for lost and broken people, it's in the incarnation. It's in the person and work of Jesus. And don't you ever forget it. But there's more. Over in John 1, when Jesus was calling his disciples, he called a man named Nathaniel. You get it? You get that? That last ending? He says, uh, uh, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel means God gives. And so Jesus calls this man who, whose name means God gives. And, and, and Philip tells him, hey, here's the Messiah. Here's the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And then Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then Jesus says, hey, yo, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under the tree. Oh, rabbi, do you say I'm a rabbi just because I told you that? He says, you, oh man, in whom there is no deceit, I tell you this, you will see the heavens opened up and you will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. Do you hear what Jesus is telling Nathaniel? 
You're not like Jacob. You're not a deceitful Israelite. And you're going to see something greater than Jacob. Jacob saw a dream. Jacob had this vision for a few hours. You are going to follow me for three years. And you are going to see the substance. You're going to see angels come upon me. And you're going to see angels forsake me. When I go to a cross, I can summon legions of them to come and get me down. But I'm going to say, stay. The only way they get healed is if you leave me here. Do you want to know God's heart for sinners? You look to the greater gate, the greater temple, the greater staircase to glory. And it's not a dream. Jesus was a real historical figure who came upon the earth, who was God. How do you respond to grace? How do we respond? One, stop running from it. Just receive it. Let God be God and forgive and bless you. You don't work for it. But grace is a Jacob is a mixed bag, y'all. <laughs> He's just like us. He shows us that it, it takes us a while to wrap our hearts around grace because it's so contradictory to the world. What does he get wrong? Look at verse 20 and 22. <laughs> Jacob says, if God will be with me, if God will keep me in the way that I go, if God will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then, all right, then, if you do all of this, then you'll be my God. <laughs> That's kind of funny, ain't it? Brother, he foreknew you before the foundations of the world. When you had done nothing good or bad, he set his love upon you. He prophesied that you get the blessing. He's promised you that, that, that he will bless the world through you. He's come to you in a dream. No one else before you has had this kind of theophanic vision of God. He's promised to give you a family and a wife and land and protection. How do you fix your mouth to say, well, if you do this, then you'll be my God? Haven't y'all prayed those kind of prayers before? Lord, if you just get me out of this... I got you. Lord, if you just get me out of this, and we kind of frown on those prayers. But God says, I answer them because I'm gracious. But Jacob gets some things right. Did you notice? He said, first, God is in this place, and I didn't know it. Y'all, that's humility. It's coming to the end of what you think you know. That those who know a lot about grace, you realize you know very little about this God. Grace humbles us. Second, he receives and forever remembers grace. So much so that he renames this place Bethel, the house of God. This makes sense for some of us, right? 
Where were you when God's grace was made known? I was in Middletown, Ohio, halfway between Dayton and Cincinnati. And that city had a name, a real name. But for me, that's the day I met Jesus. And that city is forever linked by God rescuing me. You see, that's what grace does. You don't forget it. You remember when Jesus makes himself beautiful and believable. Third, Jacob responds with reverence and worship. Verse 17 says he was afraid. Verse 18 says he took that stone and poured oil on it. Verse 22 says, whatever I earn, I will give you a tenth. The oil, the holy fear, the responding to God's grace with giving back a portion of what God gives. This is worship. We know how much we marvel at the grace of God. But how much we want to worship him. If we don't want to worship him. If we don't want to be generous to him, if we don't want to delight in the forgiveness of our sins, if we don't want to sing his praises, if we don't marvel in his compassion, then it's an indicator that we are not making much of grace. But when we do, I'm yours. What I have is yours. What I do with my time is yours. What I give my heart to is you. May we, saints, make much of grace. And may we, saints, respond, receive, and give it out. Let's pray. Dear Lord, your word is rich and beautiful and good. Thank you for being the same yesterday, today, and forever. I pray for those, Lord, who don't know you. Might today be a day where they see you lifted up and merciful and gracious in Jesus. I pray for those of us, Lord, who are worried about children and bad decisions. And if they are beyond your reach, I pray that this word will remind them that they are not. There is no corner on this earth, no situation our children can get into, no situation that we can be in that your grace cannot reach us. Thank you, Jesus, for your coming and living and dying and obeying. May we worship you now and forever. We pray in your name. Amen.